Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week is the third and, for now, the last part in our basketball butterfly effect series with Hoops aficionado Arya Shirazi. Now, if this is the first time you've listened to this series, basketball butterfly effect is when we look at a draft decision and game out how the NBA world as we know it now would have been dramatically altered if a critical decision had gone in the other direction. So far, we've looked at the 2003 draft and asked what the world would be like if the Pistons had taken Carmelo Anthony instead of Darko Milicic. We have looked at the 1996 draft and asked what if the Charlotte Hornets had held on to a future legendary 18-year-old Kobe Bean Bryant instead of trading him to the Lakers for serviceable center and chain smoker Vlade Divac. That guy likes his cigs, and I'm not judging, I'm just saying. And today, we look at what might have been the most iconic draft in history, 1984. That draft gave us one of the best centers to ever live at number one, Akeem Olajuwon. It gave us a top three all-time power forward in Charles Barkley at the number five pick. My top three for what it's worth are Duncan, Malone, and then Barkley. And at number 16, the league's all-time leader by a mile in assists and steals, John Stockton. But of course, this draft also contained at the number three pick, perhaps the greatest NBA player to ever live, number 23, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. The great what if in this draft lies in the number two pick. One was Elijah Wan, an unimpeachable pick. Three, going to the Bulls, as mentioned, was Jordan. But then sitting there stinking like a number two. Classy, thank you. The Portland, <laughs> the Portland Trailblazers select Sam Bowie, who had an injury-plagued 10-year career. And frankly, in looking it up, I was shocked he even played 10 years. And even that is a misnomer because he played in 10 seasons. He certainly did not play 82 games a year, injury plagued as he was. So what would the basketball world be like today if the Portland Trailblazers at number two had selected Michael Jordan? Before we go on, I want to say what's up to Arya Shirazi. Arya, what's up? How are you, Dave? Thanks for having me back. Oh, man. Wouldn't think of any other way to do this. So right away, just everything I laid out in terms of the 84 draft, the players picked, it's it's supremacy, arguably, in draft history. Any thoughts about that or disagreements? Absolutely no disagreements. I thought it was uh, you really summed everything up. It was a stellar intro. So I'm, uh, I'm ready to get in and talk about it. Awesome. Now, What's crazy, Ari, uh, before we start, I got to tell you this, is I went back to watch the 1984 draft. It's right there on YouTube. And even the end, even then, you got to hear this. Like, like let, let's play it right now. Okay, just in case we can't get the, the, the audio, I'm going to say. So even then, the announcers are saying Sam Bowie, solid big man at number two. That's what they say about him. He's a solid big man. And at number three, they're like, Michael Jordan, that guy could change the game. So even then, a perception that Bowie was a center, you know, with, with, a, with a high floor and a low ceiling, and Jordan had the possibility to remake the world. Even in the commentary in 84, this is hardly revisionist. And 
just one month after the draft, Jordan went to the stratosphere at the Olympics, which was just a whole mind-blowing thing for people because, you know, Jordan actually in his college career only averaged 18 points a game, obviously had tremendous talent, but, you know, he wasn't Michael Jordan. So what was, that's Ari, my first question for you. What was the 1984 mindset, first from the Portland perspective, if you would, and then perhaps the perspective of the entire NBA mentality at the time that would make it totally logical to take Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan? Well, it was interesting that you uh, went back and heard the audio of the broadcast of the draft. I had not watched that draft live back in 1984 uh and the announcers seemed to uh view jordan coming out of carolina as a potential game saver and Bowie coming out of kentucky apparently as a uh you know uh future nba big man for sure uh the only uh kind of insight that i have on it is a documentary that i saw on Bowie a bunch of years back, which was really interesting. Uh, But at least from that perspective, and I don't think it was just out of Sam's own mouth, uh, much like in 03, when the number one pick was a foregone conclusion, uh, number two, uh, the consensus was that it was going to be Bowie. So at least according to that source, Bowie was not a big shocker. It was not a scandal that he was taken ahead of Jordan, who had been a great college player and uh, NCAA champion under Dean Smith with the Tar Heels. Uh, And you're talking about the mindset in 84 uh, is that if players had either comparable value or comparable potential, you went with hype. Now height is looked at completely different. What can you do with that height? And some players' height right now is a detriment, is looked at as a detriment. But in the mid-80s and uh, certainly before that, and for many years directly after that, height was very, very prized above all, and especially the ability either to get two quick points inside uh, and also be a defensive intimidator around the basket on that end of the floor. So I think that that Bowie, uh, having a good career at a huge program like Kentucky, uh, was viewed as the number two pick, uh, regardless necessarily of who wound up with that pick behind Elijah Wong. Now, what was it, though, about Portland as a team that if, say, they were saying, do we take Sam Bowie or do we take Michael Jordan? Why would they say, what do we need with Michael Jordan? In anticipation of this discussion, I actually did a little research as well and went back to see what kind of year the Trailblazers had had in 1984 leading up to the draft. Uh, I really had no idea. They were a solid playoff team under Jack Ramsey. They won 48 games that year. And uh, and we're looking to take the next level as a potential championship contender. And they had a lot of offensive firepower on the perimeter. 
Uh, they had John Paxson, who had been there, who was their leading scorer, who was an all-star guard. They had uh, just coming off his rookie year, Clyde Drexler, uh, poised to take the next step in what did become a Hall of Fame career. And they had just acquired another uh, mid-20s a game score in Kiki Vandeweghe. So I know that in general, uh, the conventional wisdom for a draft is take the best player available. And that usually stands to, uh, regardless of where you pick in the draft. You don't want to uh, sit by and see a team drafting behind you, uh, take a player who winds up uh, being a real difference maker in the NBA. But it looks as though Portland, again, with that trio of really, really talented, and in Drexler's case, very young perimeter players, it would kind of make sense that for a team which was not starting at the bottom, a team which was firmly a playoff team and looking to advance further, that they would draft for need in the form of a seven, a mobile seven-foot-one guy who uh, who was being highly regarded by NBA scouts. Yeah, great great points about where Portland was. 48 wins. They still had the championship coach in Jack Ramsey. But Michael Jordan's an interesting player because, you know, there, there are players who have Hall of Fame careers because of situational reasons. They get drafted to the right place. They're in the right system. They be, they're able to become that guy. Michael Jordan is in that really special category of if he goes somewhere – the team is going to have to reckon with his talent and build around him eventually. But maybe that doesn't happen in Portland. Maybe this ends with a trade after a couple of years. I mean, Ramsey, old school coach, Drexler, highly thought of, Paxson. I mean, I wonder, does Michael Jordan make a go of it in Portland even? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that Portland should have taken Jordan over. <laughs> yes. Uh, in hindsight, <laughs> with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, no, Jordan came into the league on, wound up coming into the league on a Chicago Bulls team uh, that, w that was not a championship contender at the time. And he instantly showed that he wasn't only an all-star guard, but kind of a transcendent player. And I know that certain coaches, especially those with the old school label, uh, have a reputation for not wanting to put rookies on the floor and really wanting to make rookies earn their playing time in practice uh, and coming off the bench for the first couple of years uh, of their careers. Ramsey uh, sounds like he was definitely one of those guys, but Clyde Drexler was just coming off a rookie year where, again, he was playing behind an all-star guard, but really saw a great deal of playing time. And it looks like he was in rotation from the start. And Jordan, especially with the game that he immediately displayed on the professional level, I have to believe that Jordan would have come in and commanded minutes. I think what it would have done uh, was probably expedite the departure of Vandeweghe and or Paxson, who wound up both departing Portland in the next few years, but after injuries kind of depleted their value. At the time of the 84 drafts, it looks like they were both all-star caliber players. Their value is probably at an all-time high. And with a young Jordan and Drexler to build around, 
uh, one or both of those players likely could have used uh, to acquire a, a player or players to put around Jordan and Drexler to uh, to become a playoff and or championship team. Mm, take it to another place. What happens to Chicago without Michael Jordan? I went back and looked at that roster. That That, that is painful, what that Bulls roster looked like. And we got to remember that the Bulls were like, one of the meme, one of the most woebegone franchises uh, in the NBA. Like the idea that the Bulls would become a dynasty would have sounded so silly to the world of of 1983, uh, because there's no hope. I mean, you look at that roster. Their best player was Orlando Woolridge. Uh, their second best player was probably Quentin Daly, who had a serious drug problem. And Orlando Woolridge liked to party himself. Let's not make any mistake about it. Um, and it's if let's say there's someone in Portland says, "My God, this Jordan guy might be pretty good." You know, who cares if we have, if we're doubling up with Drexler? I mean, why wouldn't we want two transcendent wing players on the court at the same time? Like, say there was someone that forward thinking. First of all, I don't think it's necessary that the Bulls take Bowie. I mean, who knows? Maybe they take Michael Cage, who was in that draft, and maybe that was just an excuse to name drop Michael Cage. Uh, but do you know who there's – I'm going to ask you this. Do you know who their starting center was? Maybe they would have taken Bowie because do you know who they had? You know who was their man in the middle? Who's that, Chicago? Yeah. Corzine? That is correct, sir. Oh, and, Nicely and, done. I, I hear that he liked to party as well. <laughs> I have from an inside source. Okay, for everybody listening, without naming names, I am going to tell this, that we would sometimes crash at a friend's house, and his mom was very sweet, so she would put up in the bathroom clippings that were sort of like uh, after-school special stuff about trying to warn us off of, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and one of them famously was just a headline <laughs> that said, and correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, Shiraz, but I believe it was... Dave Corzine gave me herpes. Was that the headline? Of course you are not wrong. <laughs> that clipping and that entire wall of clippings scared me straight. <laughs> it certainly did, did, sir. It told me that I wanted to stay away from STDs and Dave Corzine. Uh, <laughs> Poor Dave at all Corzine. Uh, this podcast uh, does not endorse that headline. No. We're only reporting the facts of our childhood. Um, so... Let me put a little bit of respect on Sam Bowie's name real quick. Um, actually, I'm not gonna, I don't want to do that because you, you did a great job talking Bowie. But the, the, the one thing that I want to say about Bowie is what a Greek tragedy in the Trailblazers history. I mean, they had arguably the most skilled big man of his generation, Bill Walton, and suffered with him through all of his foot issues. And then that they would say, there's no way that this could happen to us again. And then get Sam Bowie. But let's not forget the Blazers traded Sam Bowie for who? Buck Williams. Critical piece on the two Trailblazers teams that made the finals. So not getting Buck Williams is a part of this story as well if they take Jordan. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, Let's make no mistake. I like Orlando Woolridge. I've always yeah. liked Orlando Woolridge. But if Orlando Woolridge is your leading scorer, or even probably your second leading scorer, you're a bad team. Mm -hmm. So 
if Chicago doesn't get Jordan, if they take Bowie and Sam doesn't even have the injury history that he winds up having, uh, I still believe that that Chicago is a uh, is kind of an afterthought for a good long time. There is no reason to acquire kind of a diamond in the rough Scottie Pippen a few years later to accommodate who Jordan had already become. Uh, and who knows when Chicago be, uh, gets in the conversation as a serious team. So obviously that tremendously impacts the Bulls franchise and also the entire Eastern Conference. As you said, uh, Bowie was the main trade piece in acquiring Buck Williams, who was a huge part and kind of the heart and soul mm. of two Portland teams that went to the championship and fell short both times. But, but but as you were saying, that's where things really, really get interesting because with drafting Bowie and without drafting Jordan, the Blazers make two finals appearances in the next eight years. And in a couple of those years where they didn't make it to the finals, they were a serious championship contender. And I think finished with the number one seed on a few different occasions when they didn't wind up coming out of the West. So it absolutely, I mean, uh, kind of the directions this can go are endless because as we've said, Jordan coming on to Portland on almost undoubtedly proving himself a very special player uh, and likely becoming the face of that franchise instead of the Bulls franchise. Do they keep Drexler? Do they trade him? Do they keep Vandewey? Do they trade him? Regardless, the entire West and the history of the West could look differently because you are potentially pairing Jordan and Drexler together when Magic's Lakers still ruled the Western Conference and would for a few more years. And then when Magic retires and the West becomes a little more open, Portland fills that void for a couple of years. Would they, with Jordan, would they have knocked off the Lakers earlier? Would they already be in the finals? Uh, one thing that comes to mind is a player drafted the very next year towards the end of the first round by Portland, Terry Porter, mm -hmm. uh, also became uh, a franchise player for them and was the point guard on those very, very successful Blazers teams of the late 80s, early 90s with Clyde and Buck Williams. So with Jordan on that team, their whole draft position the following year is different. They're likely not in a position to take Porter. So the entire direction of the Trailblazers franchise and the Western Conference uh, gets completely changed up. But I guess that's why uh, we're talking about this. Absolutely. And, you know, in some way, shape, or form, the Trailblazers drafting Jordan warps either Drexler's career or Jordan's career as we currently know it. And I think. And I totally want to hear if you think I'm wrong here. I think that, like, say your typical 25-year-old hardcore NBA fan thinks that in the early 90s, there was some kind of massive gap between Michael Jordan and, and Clyde Drexler. And that's what makes the decision in 84 all the more wild. But I remember when the Dream Team was put together, it was a no-brainer that Drexler be on the team. And what made it particularly cool was he took the spot that was like the wild card spot. 
like best possible player because they had they were running Jordan, of course, at, at you know at the two, and Drexler was the backup too on the team, and sometimes started those Olympic games. I just remember it being much more when the Blazers were going to the finals, like a one and one a kind of a th- no no that's too much, but like a one and a two with there not necessarily being seen as some massive gap between one and two. Totally agree with you. Uh, being a huge basketball fan during the time frame that we're talking about, huge NBA fan. Uh, Jordan was the best shooting guard in the NBA and Clyde was two. And Clyde mm-hmm. was the best shooting guard in the Western Conference during that time for a good many years. And I agree that it's one and two. But if Jordan was definitively a level above Drexler, I feel like Clyde was definitively a level above whoever was number three at that time, whether it was Mitch Richmond or Joe Mm. Dumars or any number of players. Uh, No, Clyde was certainly the second best uh, shooting guard in the NBA during the Jordan years. He was on, uh, as you said, he was unquestionably a member of the dream team. Uh, And uh, no, I mean, I, I really agree with what you're saying, because on that Chicago team that you broke down a little bit, the ball goes into Jordan's hands from day one and he mm-hmm. shows that he is absolutely up to it. He wins rookie of the year with huge scoring numbers his rookie year, uh, misses a large portion of his second year, I believe, with a foot injury, but comes back in the playoffs and drops 60 on the Celtics, really kind of arriving as not only a rising star who plays above the rim, but one of the very, very best players in the NBA and possibly already by that point, the most unguardable scorer in the NBA. And Mm. so Jordan, the way it plays out in Chicago, year by year, as he's putting up huge scoring numbers, every year they're acquiring a piece or two to build around him. And as he grows, you see the Bulls record getting better and better. And that's not just due to Jordan, who's really great the whole time. It's that they start building a championship team until they have a championship team. And actually, I think that there's a bit of a uh, Jordan. The name Jordan has taken on such legend at this point that there's this thought of, well, wherever Michael played, he was going to get his rings. Whoever Jordan played for, they were going to win. And that may or might not be true, but Michael Jordan was in his eighth season and was already the had many scoring titles to his name and had won at least one most valuable player when he finally had in his eighth year a team around him that could not only play for the championship but win it so jordan did not step onto an nba court and and immediately make his team a championship contender. He stepped onto the court, was an unbelievable player, and spent eight years building the perfect team around him to be able to finally beat uh, whoever came at them. You know, another, th- what relates directly to that is that partly out of the success and incredible publicity of rookie Michael Jordan, the Air Jordan, taking the league by storm, all the rest of it was that the guy who picked Michael Jordan, Rod Thorne, 
got a sweet little bump up to working in the commissioner's office. And who replaces Rod Thorne? Jerry Krause. Crumbs. S- crumbs himself. So maybe that's actually the first thing I thought to when I said that's so awful. This guy built a dynasty and we're like, crumbs. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't take much for me to, to understand to it. <laughs> About the same thing, man. Um, so Thorne um, maybe stays in Chicago or gets shit canned for picking Sam Bowie. Um, who knows? So, you know, th- that maybe Kraus doesn't come in. I mean, there's a lot of things there with Thorne to Kraus. The other thing is, you know, Jordan, this is like huge for the history of the NBA and the future of the NBA that Jordan landed in Chicago instead of Portland because. Again, for the young fan that might be listening, you know, we live in an era now where it really doesn't matter too much where you play. I mean, LeBron in Cleveland, global megastar. Dame in Portland, everybody knows Dame. You know, Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City, that market is, you know, smaller than Northeast D.C., for goodness sakes. And you still get KD as a global star. Back then, not so much. It was a big deal back then that Jordan was playing on WGN, which broadcast cable throughout the Midwest, and you could get it on some cable services even on the East Coast. So this era before NBA Pass, this kid plays 82 games as a rookie, averages 28 a game, and puts on a show every single night. So I think you take that out of the equation you also lose the narrative, and maybe we could say this narrative isn't even true, that it was Magic Bird and Jordan who, quote-unquote, saved the NBA in the 1980s. Totally. I mean, you know, we've been talking about where the Bulls were at that time. I mean, whether or not they lucked into Jordan at three, that is a huge market that was absolutely thirsting for a face of the franchise and the whole city not that but you're right i mean the the huge boom of jordan his rookie year is that not nearly as strong if he's in oregon as opposed to chicago who knows i mean going back to how the on-court product was affected uh you know you wonder, especially if the Blazers choose to keep Clyde and play him alongside uh, Jordan. And at six seven, Drexler certainly had small forward size at the at at the two position. So I think that it, it certainly could have worked with uh, with the two of them playing together. Uh, do they and is a team put around them? fast enough to actually be able to challenge the Lakers while magic is at the helm. There's always kind of that, you know, the NBA history is is bittersweet in how it did go down when Jordan's Bulls finally make it to the championship and show that they are the best team in the league. They beat magic's Lakers. Mm -hmm. And so it was really, that was the matchup and, uh, you know, magic, Lose, losing in the finals that year. He was second in the MVP voting that year to Jordan. And then in the offseason, prematurely retires. So there's always that sense of being robbed of 
future Bulls Lakers matchups. Uh, the Magic Lakers retooling accordingly in order to be able to conquer Chicago. We'll never know. Would a Blazers led uh, Jordan led Blazers? Would that curve have gone fast enough for them to challenge the Lakers while Magic was still on that team? And just as intriguing with the East, the East has a very linear narrative. Uh, Larry Celtics really ruled the East in the 80s. Then you have a few years of the bad boys before it's turned over to Jordan's Bulls. Even if the first two thirds of that time frame happens, that Pistons team wasn't going to uh, be championship contenders forever. So without a Jordan Pippen Bulls, who assumes uh, or which teams assume uh championship aspirations in the East with no Larry on the Celtics and no Jordan on the Bulls. So the West becomes even more nuts with both Magic and Jordan representing that conference and a huge void is left in the East. And of course, 76ers and Knicks fans, Charles Barkley and Patrick Ewing fans are going to look at that and say, yep, that was, that would have been us. Yeah, and here's some big New York bias, but New York had something futuristic and amazing going on with something called the Bomb Squad under Rick Pitino. Uh, they went from being a 20-something winning team to a 52-win team in two years, largely on just what now is, looks quaint, but was for then rapid-fire three-point shooting by people like Trent Tucker, Gerald Wilkins, Rod Strickland. Not, not all of them were even great shooters. Johnny Newman, but they, they still wow, shot. How did that team not win a title? No, but I'm saying, what if they did? The iconic bomb squad. All right, I'm huffing glue. Um, the the other Jordan thing, the, the butterfly effect we have to see is that Jordan, you know, you're right that Jordan only wins a championship because Krauss builds him a championship team. But Jordan, of course, is also the sun around which the planets revolve. So, what happens to Phil Jackson's legacy? That's interesting to me. What happens to Scottie Pippen's legacy? Probably still strong, great player. But this is the one that, that is under my skin a little bit. What happens to Dennis Rodman's Hall of Fame legacy? Because if you remember, no one remembers Dennis Rodman on the Spurs, but he was imploding. Personally, he was imploding on the court. He couldn't get along with Bob Hill. The coach, then again, who could get along with Bob Hill? I don't have no idea what I'm talking about. I have no idea. You might be a very pleasant person. But what happens to these guys, Shiraz, without Jordan in your mind? And we could add Kukoc in there as well. Well, first of all, uh, I want to make, make clear that I certainly was not trying to step on any good vibes about the bomb squad. Uh, it felt like you know, it a little I, bit. I absolutely love that team in the present and in hazy memory. Uh, it's just like many things. It, it sounds less impressive when you name the individual components. <laughs> Mark Jackson uh, from three. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, again, we are, you know, we have been talking in these three conversations we've had. We have been talking about absolute NBA royalty basketball royalty the top of the top we're talking about the lebron james draft 
Carmelo Anthony specifically. We've been talking about Kobe, and now we're talking about Jordan. So we are talking about the you know, uh, not only transactions that had a domino or butterfly effect, but the 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 moves or and decisions that are going to be the most resounding. The moves that led to championships and championship eras. So when we alter history, those eras then don't exist. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I have no idea if Scottie Pippen is an all-star, let mm. alone a top 50 player of all time and a six-time NBA champion. Uh, it's just different. Uh you know, I mean, yeah. who, like, who knows what, you know, Scotty was such an unusual player and such mm -hmm. a late bloomer. And it's almost it, it, it's such kismet that that Krause had the foresight to nab him on draft night, because how can you forecast that he's going to work that way with Michael Jordan on two different eras of championship teams? Uh, you know, it's it's really incredible foresight. Uh, on Crumb's part, but the the uh, other I got to interrupt real quick because the other foresight on Crumb's part was the draft day trade of removing himself of a center who took Virginia to the Final Four, Olden Polonese, for Pippen. So that mindset that we're sort of complaining about about the '84 draft of saying well, you have to take the big man, you have to worship at the altar of height. Kraus wasn't playing that game a lot earlier than a lot of folks. No, by that point, Kraus sees what he has in Jordan and what a team with Jordan as, as a centerpiece can do. And he grabs the perfect, perfect piece to be able to take it to the level that he is uh, envisioning. Pippen's career is completely changed. Phil Jackson was brought into the Chicago mix from the CBA by Doug Collins, and then winds up, uh, I don't know if he stabbed him in the back, but, uh, but, he, <laughs> took, but, but, but he took his job after Collins was fired, after yeah. winning a lot of games. But uh, so Phil mm -hmm. is not in that position, does not inherit that Bulls team. His, uh, his future trajectory, maybe it never gets on track in any meaningful way. Rodman, we know that, you know, after his pivotal role in, on Detroit's championship teams, uh, had major, major personal problems with uh, with seemingly ineffective supervision. And <laughs> on an almost uh, and monthly then, basis, too. And, and then goes to a very mature and focused Chicago team and is able to have that chapter in an unbelievably mutual beneficial relationship. Kukoc's career also altered. I think he has much, much bigger individual numbers in the NBA and likely no championship rings. So, uh, so yes, I mean, basketball history and the histories and career trajectories or possibilities of major, major players and coaches are all altered and or defined by Jordan falling to Chicago at three. You know, it's interesting. I think Phil Jackson stays in Albany. Scotty Pippen maybe becomes a super Swiss Army knife sixth man somewhere. Dennis Rodman implodes. But Kukoc is the only one that makes me sad a little bit about his collision with the Jordan Bulls and before that, you know, the so-called Pippen Bulls. 
because I feel like Kukoc is more uh, forgotten now than he should be. And sometimes that means having the space to be yourself. And I never liked Kukoc in the triangle offense. I would have loved him being treated, frankly, like Luka is treated now. Can you imagine a team that built around Kukoc the way the Mavs build around Luka? That would have been so fun. And I feel like going to the Bulls, having to play that role, I mean, he's a tremendous teammate. He rang every bit of juice out of that that he could. But that's the only one where I'm like, oh, darn, I wish he didn't have those rings. You know you're absolutely preaching to the choir. Uh, Tony Kukoc is one of my all-time favorite players, even with all of the players at his height today who have incredible skills and who put up huge numbers nightly. I still don't think I've seen a 6'11 player who moves and plays like Kukoc. I've mm-hmm. still never seen a true 6'11 point guard except for Kukoc. And you are a million percent right. He came into the most restrictive situation. Not only Jackson's successful triangle, which takes away a lot of freelancing and offensive instincts from players, but also playing with Jordan and Pippen. Mm-hmm. Kukoc had the skills where I feel as though he would have been the primary ball handler and playmaker on all but maybe five teams in the league at that time. Again, do I know how much success a Kukoc-led NBA team in the 90s and uh, early 2000s would have had? I'd love to think a lot, but I absolutely have no idea. But a guy with his skills having to share the ball with Jordan and Pippen, uh, I always thought Tony was the best Ironically, I think he's the best ball handler and passer of all three of them with definitely the most range. He's certainly Mm. the third best player, but actually the most versatile and multi-skilled offensive player of any of them. And I absolutely, he finally got to play that role a little bit after his Chicago days where he was in his thirties and uh, and it wasn't quite the same. But if he had come into the NBA not restricted by the Bulls system and teammates, uh, I think he would be a player right now talked about as not only having kind of ahead of his time game, but ahead of his time production. Mm-hmm. And who knows if that actually precipitates a pr- the prototype of that kind of player, maybe even a decade earlier than wound up occurring. Yeah, and, you know, I guess uh, that's the only time here where the butterfly effect really slaps somebody across the head. Because I'll say this, too. You're absolutely correct that Kukoc was the third best player on that team. But some of that, too, is that he was slotted to be the third best player on that team. That's how restrictive the triangle was. Absolutely. It's like, it's like you're going to be the third best player. And he's, you know, good teammate, and he's seeing Michael frickin' Jordan. And so he's like, all right, I'll be the third best player. So he never got to really explore the studio space when he was in his uh, athletic prime. We could say the same things about Arvidas Sabonis overseas, and we could say the same thing about Drazen Petrovic because of the short uh, length of his career. And I guess as we're winding up here and go to last thoughts, um, one butterfly effect regarding Sam Bowie that I'm really positive about is living in New York, I got to see a lot of Nets games for that period when he was on the Nets because we could get the Nets on local cable. 
W-O-R, I believe, played a lot of nets. Um, and you had Bowie on a team with Derek Coleman, Kenny Anderson, and Drazen Petrovic. And Bowie, in those years when he played, it was good. One of the best passing big men I've ever seen. He was good. I agree with you, and I'm glad you brought that up, Dave. Uh, you're right. By that point, he was already hobbled. Mm-hmm. He was playing with bulky knee braces, and he, you know, and he already had kind of a a limping gait. But you didn't just see flashes of the talent. We we saw it. We saw yeah. it throughout games and saw it throughout seasons. So absolutely. Uh, a player taken ahead of Jordan, who's not Elijah on that, that decision is going to define them. Mm-hmm. And even if Bowie had stayed on the court a lot more than he was able to, I think this, the conversation would still be somewhat similar. I don't see a healthy Bowie taking his career to the point where Portland isn't second guess for uh, passing Jordan over because of him. But, no, you're absolutely right. Getting a chance to see even that version of him in Jersey. Oh, he was a ball player. He was a player. And uh, the the little bit of research I did in anticipation of this conversation, uh, I was really surprised to see that Bowie played, I think, something like 76 games in his rookie year. Right. I was surprised by that, too. I think I thought that he suffered a stress fracture in game six and he was never able to and and he was broken from then on. No, He he was on the all rookie team. He was on the all rookie team. He was a rotation member behind a solid veteran in Michael Thompson on a solid playoff team and just learned that in that offseason, Portland traded Thompson in anticipation of Bowie stepping in as their starting center. It is early in that second season that he broke his leg for the first time uh, and really never recovered from that health-wise, played a shockingly few number of games, I think, over the next three seasons while Jordan was becoming the most exciting player in the league. Uh But yeah, I mean, in his one healthy season, Bowie absolutely showed himself to be uh, a young big man with a really bright future on a team that was hoping to do big things. And uh, it's possible that at the end of the 85 season, even with Jordan coming off that rookie of the year season and having his own sneaker line, I don't know that it was... Uh, common discussion that Portland had made a mistake. Yeah, and w- one last thing I'll say before we, we tragically have to wrap this up, but I think you and I are both, both going to lose our voices if we keep going on, but I could talk to you about this for quite some time. Yeah, I'm um, in Carlissimo mode. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> Jesus, man. Someone, hey, Latrell, get him a lozenge. Oh, that didn't go well. Um, Nobody remembers it anymore, except me. Oh, I, know. <laughs> I know, right. Um. But I just wanted to just say a comment, like, with, with love and respect to not just Sam Bowie, but the Portland Trailblazers. Look how good you have to be to not be second-guessed for taking – for. oh, I'm sorry. Look how good – three, two, one. I want to say this right. Look how good a player has to be for a team not to be second-guessed for not taking Michael Jordan. You can't just be a good player. You have to be a keen freaking Elijah on. 
one of the ten, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the ten most talented players in NBA history, and I will die on that hill anytime. And people who put Shaq ahead of him, I will die on the hill that it's Akeem as well. But you have to be that level, that level. So you know, Portland, it's like either you take Michael Jordan or you lose. And that's a pretty tough position with hindsight, the basketball butterfly effect. This is the <laughs> this was probably the most extreme one that we've covered thus far. Great last point. Uh, no, it is such a testament to Akeem that 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 quest that uh, that that selection is not what's questioned. And I think even if you had maybe asked the Houston Rockets in '84. This big man from University of Houston, he's going to play on your team for 15 years and you're going to win two championships. I think they would have taken that. So it worked out really, really well for them, even better for Chicago. But absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it, it shows what a fantastic uh, and brilliant player the dream was that the only Portland selection is the one that is now rightfully questioned. Still the only player in NBA history, and this boggles my mind, to have more than 200 blocks and 200 steals in the same season. What a player. One of, one of my top three players to watch ever. Absolutely. Thrilled that I got to see his career in full. Absolutely. Bueno. Bellissimo. Yo, Shiraz, man, thank you so much for our three-part series on the basketball butterfly effect. Hopefully this will just be chapter one in illuminating discussions with you about what might have been. I look forward to any future episodes. Thanks again for having me. Awesome. We'll be right back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about a rapidly, rapidly moving story. So I don't know if this is gonna be up to date, but the point needs to be made. Okay, look, in a stunning move, FIFA, the morally bereft international body that oversees global soccer, has suspended the president of the Royal Spanish Football Federation, Luis Rubiales, from office while investigating his conduct at the Women's World Cup final. That stirring match ended with Spain beating England one to nothing. Yet instead of marveling at the remarkable story of Spain's rise, the topic on soccer fans' minds is Rubiales's non-consensual kiss, otherwise known as an assault, of star player Jenny Hermoso following the match. But FIFA was compelled by Rubiales's refusal to resign at a hastily called Spanish Federation meeting last Friday in Madrid. Instead, the 46-year-old Rubiales said, I won't resign four times in a row with the resoluteness of Nikita Khrushchev at the UN to applause from the almost entirely male audience. 
It was an embarrassing display, not only for Rubiales, but the entire Federation. His speech and the Federation's repugnant response highlights not only that these issues are not new in Spanish soccer, but that the sexist rot runs very deep. Rubiales has now been officially removed from all soccer duties for 90 days, pending the disciplinary proceedings opened against him. In response, Rubiales is now suing the Women's Soccer Union and saying that Hermoso is lying about the consensual nature of the kiss. This is a repugnant person living in an age, as we see certainly in U.S. politics, where malignant misogyny can be met with standing ovations. The entire affair has roiled not just the sports world in Spain, but the entire country. This should be a moment of unfettered glory for the Spanish women's national soccer team. Yet because of the sexist, patronizing, condescending, disrespectful, and altogether repellent male leadership in Spanish soccer, they instead are having to deal with patriarchal malice. Rubiales has gone in the last week from weakly apologizing to now insisting the kiss was consensual. He seems to care not a whit for Hermoso, who had a false statement put out on her behalf by the Federation, saying she bore no ill will towards Rubiales, to now where, in her own words finally, she states unequivocally, I feel obligated to state that the words that Mr. Luis Rubiales has used to expand the unfortunate incident are categorically false and part of the manipulative culture he has created himself. Hermoso is far from alone. All 22 of Hermoso's teammates and 58 other Spanish players announced they will no longer play for the national team if Rubiales does not step down. In addition, Spain's women's soccer union, Spanish political leaders, and a slew of journalists have also called for his resignation. In spite of this, he still holds the support of the objectively abusive, roundly despised coach of the team, Jorge Vilda, whom he just signed amidst all of this tumult to a new four-year contract. This can only be understood, especially while Vilda is being investigated for his own post-match assault as a middle finger at the women who have bristled for years under Vilda's thumb. The situation has rapidly become, because of Rubiales' refusal to accept that he did anything wrong, more than an ugly moment broadcast around the world. It is a litmus test for what side you are on, not just on whether Rubiales should be fired, but in regards to the rights of women athletes the world over. And Rubiales' Trumpian defense, he is gaining support from the most backwards, revanchist elements of Spanish society and beyond. Yet forces are also aligning against him. In addition to the aforementioned Spanish hoops legend Pau Gasol, in addition to several of the team's top sponsors, are standing in support of Hermoso. This has rapidly become a you-can't-stay-neutral-on-a-moving-train moment. Everyone in Spain is being asked, which side are you on? The tragedy is that this should be a moment that is solely about the team. That the squad, made up largely of players from the Barcelona squad, could perform the way they did, even with an abusive, misogynistic coach and a federation that has disrespected and underfunded them every step of the way, should be the story. This needs to be a moment to agitate for full equality for women's sports in Spain. They should be having a watershed moment as the nation roars its love, not unlike when the U.S. women's national team won equal pay with their male counterparts after winning the last World's Cup. Instead, they have to defend their very humanity as athletes and as women. It is not fair. It is wrong. But at the very least, the battle lines have been drawn and the fight, simmering for decades in the world of Spanish women's sports, is finally out in the open and finally been joined. 
I do not expect Rubialis to survive this, but if he emerges from this as some kind of folk hero, it will tell you just how far we have to go, and not only in Spain. The real hero, the one who never asked for the title, is Hermoso, her teammates, and everyone looking at Rubialis and Vilda and saying enough is enough. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Arya Shirazi for making the time. Thank you so much to David Tigabu, the producer of this podcast. For everybody out there listening, you know you can support the pod. Just you know, find Patreon, find our page, uh, like the podcast, give it a five-star rating, all the stuff that makes sure that algorithms push Edge of Sports forward. I think we do great work, and I think if you're listening, you think it too. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.